On this episode, I'm in the room with Larry Osborne discussing how to live fruitfully in a fallen world. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 25. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, the concept is simple. I want to bring you into the room for conversations I have with interesting people. I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. This week, I'm in the room with Larry Osborne. He's been the pastor of North Coast Church in San Diego, California for 35 years. He's also the author of a number of insightful books, including his most recent, Thriving in Babylon, Why Hope, Humility, and Wisdom Matter in a Godless Culture. In our conversation, we discuss the difference between information and insight, why so many Christians have such a gloom and doom attitude, and how God's people can thrive in a godless world. So get settled and come on in the room for my conversation with Larry Osborne. Larry, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Really appreciate it. So excited to have you. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but when I started the podcast, I had five people in mind that I most wanted to interview, and you're one of them. So uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, (laughs) I I appreciate it very much. So for people that may not be super familiar with you, you've been uh, the senior pastor, now one of four senior pastors, which I want to talk about in a sec at North Coast uh, in Southern California. You've been there since 1980, started with 128 people people. You didn't start the church, but could you just kind of in bullet points share the story of North Coast a little bit? Sure, sure. Well, very much it was a church plan. It was a year and a half old. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine had started the Bible study that morphed into a, a thing at that point called the Carlsbad Evangelical Free Church. It was meeting in the Carlsbad High School cafeteria, Okay, uh, complete with food fights on the wall and skateboarders outside the plexiglass windows uh, who were always more interesting than my sermon. Yeah. Uh, so those those were interesting days. Uh, I, I, there were, uh, I think, 128 on my candidating Sunday, which probably means 70 adults because I was 28 years old and the guy who founded it was 31 or something. So, okay. you know, you're drawing younger folks. And uh, the quickly grew to about 150. And then three years later, we were all at 151. So very <laughs> okay. phenomenal growth. Uh, uh, one thing that because of the size of our church, I think a lot of people don't understand that was part of God's, I think, work in my life to work with church planners and pastors is uh, I spent the first five years as the only person on staff. You know, you get there early, clean the gum off the sidewalk, uh, help set up, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Because I think sometimes people think, when they see somebody on the the backside of uh, some significant growth or whatever, well, it just it just happened right. like that. And uh, not only that, I, I frankly a, a real shaping thing for me is I'd had great success uh, in two youth ministries, and so I was always young for what I was doing, uh, very successful. And so part of God's work in those three years was just to rake me across the coal, uh, coals and teach me. I wasn't quite what I thought I was. Yeah. So when you grow by a third person a year, uh, <laughs> after having had the two largest youth ministries in the history of a couple of churches you'd worked at, uh, you kind of learn, no, this is a God thing. And, you you know, you're just along for the ride. Right. And sometimes you win the battle and sometimes you lose. It's just about faithfulness. Yeah. Um, somewhere around that fifth year, we made a lot of changes that really have been the ones that we're probably best known for. Shared leadership, sharing the pulpit. Uh, our lecture lab model of sermon-based small groups, making that the hub uh, of our ministry. 
uh, a lot of those things came about 180, which is 95 to 100 people, adults showing up. Okay. Uh, it was time to say, okay, I did it your way. Now can we try a different way? And uh, God seems to have blessed that. Yeah. And so now you're multiple sites, multiple venues, correct? You guys have really been right. leaders in that whole thing. Yeah, we were out of space, uh, good time slots, and I'd actually had some anxiety attacks. So my board said, you can't keep preaching more and more sermons. Yeah. So we had about 3,200 people way back then showing up in a little campus warehouse that seated 500. And we came up with the video venues. We're often credited with multi-site, but we were probably one of the first 10 multi-site churches. Okay. But what we really created was the concept of an... Uh, using video as a siphon, not as an overflow. And then people came, saw what we were doing, and cloned themselves. And so they were really playing with our toy the wrong way. I was thinking of demographic expansion. Uh They were doing geographic expansion. So little known story is my staff really didn't like the idea of video venues at first. But once we did it, it was like a lot of focus groups. Like, oh, I don't understand what that is. I love it now. And then they came to me and said, how about multi-site? And I said, it won't work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I quickly changed my mind when I saw a few of the churches we help very, you know, that are well known, uh, come see what you're doing and use it that way. And so, uh, and for us, it just solved a space problem. And then we realized it was a way for us to grow large, but feel small, which is a real value of ours going way back. We say leaders like it big, most people like it small. That's right. And so that, that just fit yeah. with uh, our value system. And so we've just continued on. We have four campuses today. Okay. Uh, and we only count local campuses. Some organizations count further away. If we're further away, we're just pulpit supply. Yeah. But under our elder board, within a, a 20, 25-minute drive time, uh, we have four different campuses. You do. Okay. Well, I mean, being somewhere for 35 years is no small thing. Uh, to be in ministry 35 years is a miracle. To be in one place that long is pretty unheard of today. And I know you could fill a book with an answer probably to this question, but what are some of the keys to longevity that come to mind for you that you've seen as you reflect on these last 35 years? Well, first of all, if nobody else wants you, you're stuck. <laughs> That's true. That's one thing. <laughs> No, I, I mean, there, there are a variety of things there for us. One of them is, is Nancy and I sensed a call that we were to move to a community and just dig down roots. That's why okay. I didn't leave when nothing went right. Uh, you know, obviously, if the Apostle Paul could be wrong about Asia Minor, Bithynia, and then end up in Macedonia, you know, you have to remain open that may be misread. Uh, but but that, that during those early years was a major thing to keep us uh, rooted uh, another just very uh, practical thing is my wife is a, a low change person. Okay. And so, uh, you know, the moment you get married, you change your personal potential for ministry because you, you have a calling to maximize your spouse and your ministry. That's good. And uh, I just have always believed that First uh, Corinthians 7 is not an accident there when it lays that out. Same with our kids when each yeah. one was born. Uh, and so on a just day-to-day practical level, that was a part of it, that during one season of, man, I don't know, let me try something else that looks good over here. She didn't dig down her heels in an inappropriate way, but just her her resistance was part of what God used during one dark season to say no. And, and I look back in hindsight, it was totally of the Lord Yeah. Uh, that, you know, left to my own devices, there are those certain times where something else looks more enticing. Yeah. And and then just the longer we were here, we just had a sense of God's call. Yeah. A few 
ministry longevity things yeah. are I had a mentor who always told me of nothing to prove and no one to impress. That's good. And uh, he just pounded that into my life. And I got to the point pretty young where I believed it. Uh, and, and that meant I didn't really struggle with too much of the burnout. Even my anxiety attacks were more chemical level than they were I had run to the extreme. Okay. Um, and, and what that, that meant was um, I've, I've done my ministry with a margin. I've not found myself hitting walls where I need some big sabbatical or huge time off. Um, I've, I early on was taught by people, run at a sustainable pace. Yeah. And don't feel guilty when you have to say no to people who, you know, just, oh, you've got to solve my problem today, even though it's taken seven years to get to this point. <laughs> right. Well, you don't have a tenure of that long without, I'm sure, having some amount of leadership regret. So I wonder what are some of the, uh, the key leadership mistakes that you've made that, you, that are, you know, honestly just others are going to make. And in hindsight, sure. you wish maybe you would have done a little bit different. Well, there's no question, and I write about it in some of my books. My first three uh, years, uh, I was using the people I had to try to reach the people I wanted to reach. Okay. Uh, I kind of thought I was going to do great things for God. And then people, I didn't mean it this way. I wouldn't have used that words. But when you look back, you realize they were tools for me to accomplish what God had called me to do. And no wonder they never brought their friends. Like, hey, once you come to this church, they'll use you. Yeah, And uh, the uh, exhortation that Peter gives in 1 Peter 5 really began to, to speak to me, shepherd the flock among you. And as I gave up my dream to be a, a pastor of a big church, I, I literally tore up a dream sheet that I had, hmm. uh, the pastor of a church of a thousand or more back when a thousand was pretty big. Yeah. And felt like if I spend my life here and we get to three or four hundred, you know, after 30, 40 years, that'll be amazing. I was able to relax and pour into the people I had, not not as consumer Christians or selfish, just the flock God gave me. Yeah. Um, and, and that was probably my biggest regret. My biggest joy is Jesus taught me uh, as we wrestled and struggled through those three years, uh, uh, taught me what I need to learn on the front end instead of uh, the back end of it. Yeah. But that was one of the biggest uh no question, regrets. Yeah. What would you say is the most difficult lesson that you've learned? Not necessarily because of your own personal favor, fav, uh, failure, but just this was a, it was a hard one. It was painful or it took me a long time to really kind of figure this out. But what, what would you say is one of, the, one of the more difficult lessons that you've learned? Well, I, I think uh, somewhere along the line, um, the idea that the people who start with you and fall in love with your church and you at the at the beginning, it was hard for me to accept that not everybody's a leader willing to do all things uh, to reach uh, some, you know, become yeah. all things to all people that I might reach some is how the Apostle Paul defends his ministry. And early on in my ministry, I read that description of his leadership heart as a prescription for every disciple. Yeah. And, and the word disciple means follower. It includes the front of the line the middle of the line and the back of the line. And so early on, I confused disciple, discipling people with leadership training. And they're two different, vitally important tracks. Yeah. Um, and so it was a difficult lesson for me to learn that not everybody's called to be a leader and that it is can be legitimate when somebody who's not called to be a leader sees the changes within our church, uh, changes of relationship structure and all that, and, and really is more comfortable in a smaller or different setting. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a hard, hard, yeah. hard thing. But I, 
You was that yeah, you, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that shared leadership's a really big virtue for you guys, and anybody that's familiar with your ministry at all knows that you guys really put that into action. You're one of four senior pastors, correct? You're correct. At North Co- and so I want to ask a little bit about specifically your relationship, not with all four necessarily, but specifically with Chris Brown, as you guys do split and share the pulpit and leadership and teaching. That's something that doesn't work a lot of the time and is really, you know, ha- has proven to be painful for some people. So how do you guys, what have maybe been some lessons along the way that you've learned in that? And then how would you recommend church planters or, sure. you know, pastors of other churches taking some steps in that direction? Well, I think people confuse, and Chris and I have experienced this the last few years when they, people look at us. Chris has been here 11 years now. Uh-huh. He's in his 11th year. Uh, and they often confuse co-pastoring with shared leadership. They are okay. different things. Chris and I are essentially co-pastoring. There's no black box that I have, and when I step aside, now he'll get the keys. You know, okay. to, uh, But neither of us believe in it philosophically. Okay. okay. Uh, every time I found co-pastoring done philosophically, I find something that works for a while, and they write books and they speak on it. Then all hell breaks loose. Right. Because uh, it, it's it, it violates everything. Everything has a head. Uh, yes. And so all the years that we had shared leadership around here, uh, I was the managing partner, and it's and when Chris came uh, a number of years into it, it just became so obvious his gifts were so large that we had two choices. He needed to go and be the managing partner somewhere else, or I needed to step back and uh, use uh, secular marketplace terms, give him some of my stock. So we were co-owners because for the sake of the kingdom, we could do more together. Yeah. But if Chris's plane went down, I would search for other partners to share the preaching load with. I wouldn't get a co-pastor. And if my plane went down, Chris would get somebody to fulfill my roles, not a co-pastor, okay. and he would clearly be the managed partner. You see that difference there? Totally, that's, yep. That's huge, because here's the issue. Most churches are structured like a sole proprietorship yep. with a lead dog and uh, after that a bunch of valued employees. But the, uh, So I took early on about 180-200, my cues from uh, organizations that have partnerships. Uh-huh. And once you've talked to a partner, you don't keep going, I need the managing partner. Right. And a partner knows way more and has way more influence, even if they're not a managing partner, than the most valued employee. Yeah. So it was sharing the pulpit, sharing the platforms. Uh, that did a lot of things for our church. It gave different voices. Uh, it gave us an if the plane goes down, we always had that succession plan in place because mm-hmm. somebody was... You could tell who that was. Right. Uh, it gave me a life. No longer. Uh, I can't tell you early on how many times I heard one of the senior pastors was there. Well, guess what? That meant I wasn't. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, everybody doesn't think Larry's got the only one with the keys to the kitchen when we were smaller. So it was much more. Let me give one other illustration. Sure. In my environment. Now, it's not true everywhere because associate's a great word. But in my tradition. When somebody's an associate, it means they're too young to have their own church or not gifted enough. Okay. So why did I want to use a term with the rest of my staff, the people who would indeed be a senior pastor, that encourage everybody to say, when are you going to get your own church? Right. Um, And so that's where it came from. And then what Chris and I do, sharing the pulpit, literally 50-50, trading off on Easter is a true co-pastorate thing where we are just tigers on different hills, along with our exec. There's three of us who are the management team. Okay. Uh, that's a rare bird. 
made up of who we are at this time and this place, and I would never philosophically copy it. Yeah, I would say copy, share the pulpit, yep. share your leadership. But I think I heard you say in a recent interview, you recommend in, a, in the teaching format, preaching format, that there be an anchor much of the time, yes. correct? Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit? Well, all the years until Chris came, uh, that people need some sense of who the leader is, because if the, the other person isn't really ready to be the leader, you send a confusing message if you act like they are. Yeah. And we've all seen that environment where somebody... Uh, is ready to wants to step up before they're ready to step up. Yeah. And so in all those years of shared senior pastors and shared pulpit, just me being the anchor, let people know, hey, he's the managing partner. So I was preaching 28 to 32, 35 times a year. Okay. But instead of having a rotation of other people, which is a bunch of subs, I had someone else when I was there that was a strong second. Uh, the way a lot of churches work, it's if you go to a Broadway and you get the understudy, you're disappointed. Right. But if you go to a Major League Baseball team and you get the, the number two pitcher instead of the number one pitcher, it's like you realize they got a team of pitchers. Right. You're not bummed. Right. And so that's how we structured it. So people saw it's not because Larry's speaking somewhere or on vacation. In fact, early years when I was on vacation, I came back a day early uh-huh. and uh, sat, made announcements, sat in the audience taking notes to send a message. This is the other preacher, not the substitute. Yeah, that's good. Um, but that's what an anchor is. And then okay. when Chris came, it's like, eh, both of us are anchors. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but I hate long ads in the middle of a good podcast I'm enjoying, so I'm going to keep this short. I am unashamedly committed to getting this podcast into as many ears as possible, and for that, I need your help. iTunes is the primary place I drive the podcast, and your reviews help increase our visibility there. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave a short review? That's it. Every review makes a huge impact. I promised I'd keep this short, so thanks for your support, and now back to the conversation. All right. Well, what are some of the things that keep you fresh personally? I know creativity is a big value for you guys and you really work hard at that. But what are some things that after 35 years in one place keep you fresh personally, creatively, pastorally, any key rhythms in your life that uh, have really helped keep you anchored in the midst of that? Yeah, a couple of things I got in my mind. Uh, The the first one is, um, again, through early mentors, I've always lived my life believing Jesus made me the way I am, and it's not a mistake. And I think a lot of us have uh, heroes out there, and we try to copy all their best practices. Yeah. So we want to write books and theology like Calvin, and we want to uh, uh, pray like Luther, and we want to serve like Mother Teresa. Next thing we know, we have a twitch. That's right, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so I've been pretty comfortable in my skin, and that's been a huge thing to my Rhythm. I'm a Myers-Briggs P, okay. which means I like to keep my options open. That's the thing that I trust my ability to adapt rather than be forced by a plan when I know the world always is changing. Yeah. Whereas uh, uh, what, what's uh, called a Myers-Briggs J, they trust their ability to plan mm-hmm. much more than their ability to react. And, yeah. and those are God-given gifts. And, and uh, I'm also an extrovert. And most of the books on the inner life are written by introverts. Yes. So one of the things that's been a great help to me in rhythms is to, uh, I live my life as an extroverted Myers-Briggs perceiver. Okay. Uh, and so I don't live on a tight schedule. I don't get up every morning and meet with Jesus because I that's not how my wife and I relate. My kids and I relate. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not me. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't have the guilt gene. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, driving me nuts on that. Yeah. So, for instance, my my personal Bible study goes through times of intensity and times of not much. Yeah. Because I'm just by job, I'm in the Word all the time. Right. Um, and I mean, there are other personalities that just goes nuts. Yeah. Um, I, I don't run to get alone because two days in a monastery with a Bible and a pen and a journal, I'm looking for a gun. Right. <laughs> uh, so that has been seriously, uh, that's why I wrote uh, Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, just uh, a sense of like, you know, the whole purpose of spiritual disciplines is to make us more like Jesus. That's right. It's not to do the disciplines. Yeah, that's and good. So, that ebb and flow has been a very important part of my life. And then the second thing is, is I have a real high value of the priesthood of believers, and I believe we're all in ministry. Mm-hmm. So even at North Coast, we don't even use the phrase called into ministry. I always call it vocational ministry. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that's kept me fresh and still to this day, I love spending time with lay leaders and uh, asking them about their business, their job. And it's just fun, the way I'm wired, to learn new things. Yeah. So, to learn something about accounting, to learn something about developers and how they think, working with the city and all that. And all of those things not only are refreshing because they have nothing to do with my daily job and I lo- I'm, I'm a born learner. Yeah. But they empower me with incredible wisdom to come back with things I never get, would have gotten seminary. Yeah. I think most of us meet with a banker so to teach him how to read the Bible. That's right. Instead of ever sitting with a banker and say, tell me how you guys make decisions. Yeah. How does that really work? Well, you know, how do you look at risk and, and say, well, why don't you disciple me on life? Yeah. Yeah, I'm two days in. I just started a new book by uh, the movie producer Brian Grazer. And uh, he just wrote, produced like A Beautiful Mind and yeah. 24. Uh, he's the, I believe, the co-founder of Imagine, the production company with yeah. Ron Howard. And he just wrote a book called The Curious Mind. And uh, he writes about these meetings that he's been having for the last 25 years that he just calls curiosity conversations. And there are people outside of his field that he does exactly what you're talking about, that he just meets with for an hour. And he talks about all the ways that it's informed how he's done what he does and that it's impacted it. But I think that's really, I've been really challenged by that. It's been good. Well, I think even if, like you asked me how I stay fresh, because me learning, uh, you know, I kind of every couple of years have some new thing I want to conquer, then I'm done, bored and ready to move on. I'm wired. But for all of us, uh, the ability to learn outside of our field is an incredibly a powerful gift of leadership yeah. that we don't use enough, yeah. especially in ministry. Yeah. Well, one thing I've really appreciated about you is that I, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but you seem to possess a level of insight that can be difficult to find. Uh, I think the world's inundated with information, but oftentimes starving for insight. Yeah. And those aren't the same thing. So what do you think the difference is between just sheer information, which we have a lot of, and insight? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think people with gifts of insight, there's a couple of things. You can hone that, but you probably have gifts that give you that. Like, okay. I honed it. I, I read whatever proverb corresponded to the day for 17 years. Okay. And then I got bored and I stopped doing it, yeah. <laughs> which just goes back to our earlier conversation yeah. of, hey, well, you can't stop. It's like, no, nah, I'm bored. Yeah. You know, I'm still in the word and yeah. learning things, but, but I learned a ton there. I think I honed it, but um, I've just always had ability to, to go through life and realize what's important uh-huh. as opposed to what is. Okay. Uh and it's almost, I fly at 30,000 feet and I see patterns and something's out of pattern. I go, that's important. Yeah. 
And my folks would tell you I did that as a little kid. Okay. You know, I would read a book and I couldn't remember the title of the book or who the author was. Yep. But I would remember something on page 46. Really? Uh, and, and so what I've tried to do as far as insight is hone that. Okay. Um, and how do you do that? How have you worked to hone that gift? Proverbs has been great. Okay. You know, it was, again, imagine for 17, sure, I missed some days, but yeah. th- that's an awful lot of time of just trying to figure out how to be a leader. Right. Uh, I would go ask myself each chapter, what am I seeing today? Often nothing. Uh-huh. Where have I seen this principle with those various verses? And uh, sometimes who? And I'd write little initials by it and okay. just kind of reflect. Yeah. Uh, that was one way of, of honing it. Um the other is sometimes I, I will try to create structures once I know that. For instance, in business, I call it a flash report. Uh-huh. You know, everything's not equally important. Like, like in our small groups, it's pretty important how many are in it, but a far more important number is how many, how, what's our retention rate? Sure. So I've tried to go through life and ask myself constantly, well, what's the most important number? What's the mo- most important thing? Yeah. Um, and then a little bit of... Uh, I call it um, uh, 35, 70, 120, and these numbers are rough. Okay. But you can learn a lot about culture, which is a big deal we're in always, Yep. by asking what happened 35 years ago, 70 years ago, and 120 years ago. Okay. And they will inform you of the cycles, uh, current ones, far more than ancient history. Yeah. So, for instance, when the internet showed up, let me just give you a business thing. Yeah. When the internet showed up, people said it's going to change the world, Right. Right. So let's invest in everything in the internet and get rich. Right. Well, you got you went broke. Right. Uh, a parallel would be the automobile. Well, when the automobile came on the scene, yeah, it was going to change the world. But there were 210 companies making automobiles. You bought stock in every single one, you'd go broke. That yep. there's a history in every kind of world-changing thing that it boils down to three or four big boys at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and the front of the line, it's not always AOL. <laughs> right, right. Uh, who, they're not always to last. Um, well, how do you learn that? You look back 35 years. Yeah. Uh, how do I, when in my mind, I'm speaking my own theology, when Emergent Village showed up and everybody was all either loving it or hating it, yep. I gathered my staff and said, this will last five years. Yeah. How do you know? Well, because I watched the Presbyterian USA go through the same exact thing when they were, they called it being modern instead of the postmodern culture. Right. And they said, to relate to modern man, we have to have a discussion and dialogue, and there's no authoritative proof. And I, I just pulled off a bunch of books from 35 years ago yeah. and said, hey, this is what happened then. Probably pretty good odds is what's going to happen next. Yeah. You've developed a reputation for being a bit of a contrarian. It's even in the title of one of your books. Um, I know that not everybody... As long as I read a crumudgeon, That's I'll, right. I'll bear contrarian. That's right. So how, how would you define what it means to be a contrarian, and then how do you do that without being a jerk, <laughs> if that makes sense? It's a little bit of a yeah, but. Okay. And, uh, it's measuring three times and cutting once. Okay. Uh, and... I mean, to me, that's all it is, because there's no value in being contrarian. The only time there's value in being contrarian is if conventional wisdom is wrong. That's right. And the vast majority of conventional wisdom is right. Uh The problem is, because the vast majority of it is right, we blindly follow all of it. Yeah, that's good. So every time some researcher comes out with a book describing what is, and then goes on to say what will be, we believe what will be. Yeah. 
based on what they said. And I go, well, why don't I read their book from 15 years ago and see how right they were on that one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so there's no value in being contrary. There's value in being accurate. That's good. Uh, so all that means is I'm, I want to be slow to adapt. I do not want to be one who does it yeah. by conventional wisdom when it's right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Well, you, you seem, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, this is a question and observation, but you seem relatively unconcerned with fitting neatly into any one tribe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and one of the things I read, I think an example of this would be in your book, Accidental Pharisees, which is a fabulous book, but it's, it's sort of an equal opportunity offender. No one walked away from that book unscathed in a, in a, in a good way. And hopefully um, me too. Yeah, exactly. Save myself. Yeah. But most people really do seem to work to appease their tribe and then throw stones over the fence at, at the other tribes. And, uh, so I wonder if that's something that you're really conscious of and intentional about, like I'm, I'm going to, you know, <clears throat> sort of not work to fit neatly into this one box because I, you know, think it's limiting or, you know, so is that something you're conscious of, intentional about, or is it just the nature of kind of who you are? Uh, a combination of those in life experience. Uh, theologically, there's something important, which is uh, I have this little grid. Are you going to spend eternity in heaven? Uh huh. And so if my answer is yes about a different tribe or whatever, then I go, I better be nice to you because you might be my neighbor for a real long time. Yeah, that's good. And uh, I, I, I think sometimes that we will be pretty critical. And uh, at the end of the day, somebody looks at us and says, well, do you think they're saved? Well, yeah. Well, if Jesus is good with you, I'll be good with you. Now, yeah. I'll discuss things and I'll challenge things because we all have blind spots and we're wrong and we all have sin. But I, I want to be much more a mirror than a set of binoculars with the scripture. Yeah. Um, so, so some of it flows out of my theology that I, the last thing I want to be is more narrow than Jesus. Sure. I just don't think I can stand before him in good space on that. And yet a lot of us don't ask that question. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and then a second thing is, was my spiritual journey. Okay. Uh, I came to know Jesus in a really rigid legalistic, uh, uh, setting, uh-huh. Um, and uh, everybody else was going to hell but our little group with all of our rules. And then I was part of the very beginning of the Jesus movement, uh -huh. who were crazy charismatics all going to hell, uh, according to my... And then I saw the Spirit of God there, and just amazing things happen, especially if you trace all the stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the first church that hired me as a youth pastor was a part of the uh, presbytery uh, uh when they were going through kind of some of their liberal turns and in the midst of what I thought was a horrible thing, I saw people who genuinely knew Jesus. Yeah. I saw people going in really bad directions. Yeah. But it was as every time I got a box for the first 15 years of my ministry, the Lord would place me somewhere else. And what I had always seen as an enemy on the other side of the fence, when I got over there, I found out, well, there are some enemies across there. Right. But at the same time, not everybody who wears that badge is an enemy. That's right. Uh, and so I think that was part of just God's journey for me because of what he wanted me to do now. Okay. Well, you've, you've written about a, an interesting variety of topics, and I was just wondering, do you have any, how do you determine what it is that you're going to write about? <laughs> Does something have to grip your yeah. heart? Do you have like a master? Like I was just listening to an interview with Tim Keller, and he's had this like master plan of the scope of what he's going to write about. And so how does that work for you? Sure. Well, uh, I was writing my third book when my oldest son was seven, and he said, I don't like it when dad writes with me, doesn't play with me. 
Oh. And that night, Nancy and I decided I was not going to write another book till all my kids were in college. And that's description, not prescription for sure. others. But um, so part of what I write about is because of uh, for 13 years, I went off the grid. I said, I'm going to be a good dad and try to be a good pastor. And then if the Lord opens the door and once they all got in college, I went back to it. Yeah. Um, the publishers hate it because I don't really have a brand. Am I a leadership guy or a, spirit, a, a discipleship guy? Right. They, they tell me you're killing yourself. But here's where I come from. Uh, leadership without discipleship is a waste of time in my mind. Uh-huh. And discipleship without leadership is a pipe dream. Yeah, that's good. And so I pretty much go back and forth because my real heart's a discipleship. Accidental Pharisees, Contrary Guide, Ten Dumb Sayings, Smart Christian Believe, Thriving in Babylon – I spend my life on that. Yeah. But I, I think the thing where perhaps I have something unique to offer was the leadership piece. Yes. And so I just refuse to just go straight leadership because that's not my heart. I'm in ministry to disciple. I just happen to have a gift in leadership. Yeah. So that's pretty much how I decide. Yeah, that's interesting. Is, uh, I, I want to bounce back and forth because I think either one is incomplete. Yeah, that's good. Well, I want to talk about thriving in Babylon. I just finished it this morning, and uh, as usual, it's great. But I wonder, what is it that inspired this book for you? What is it that you were seeing? Uh, where did it come from? And then just tell tell people that are listening a little bit about it. Yeah, well, Thriving in Babylon was almost written about seven, eight years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, because it's been a passion of mine. I, I felt like as the culture wars began to heat up before they even called culture wars or just beginning to, that uh, we were responding in the ways of the world, not the ways of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had this fear that uh, there was going to be a backlash. And uh, I, as I would study through scripture, I was doing uh, the book of Daniel. And of course, Joseph is a very similar uh, uh, example. Yeah. And it just struck me that, that Daniel and Joseph's story, they're not adventure stories for children. Right. And, and Daniel's not a prophecy manual so we can speculate. Uh, that all scripture is given rebuke, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So I put on the lens and said, how did Daniel thrive in Babylon? Yeah. And again, I could have done it with Joseph as well, but we had more in Daniel. And uh, I just found myself continually almost grieved by the knee-jerk response in Christian circles that instead of hope was a lot of resentment and panic and fear, uh, instead of humility was once again a lot of resentment and anger. And almost feeling like if you humbly serve the godless, you were supporting a godless cause. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Daniel and Joseph got promoted because the godless people over them were being helped by them. Right. You don't promote somebody who sabotages you, doesn't like you. And, and then just their wisdom to pick the battles, which are, became the subtitles of this. Yeah. So that's really what it flowed out of. And it just has continued to increase as now. Frankly, we're on the backside. We we, we lost the right. culture wars. We are in Babylon. Yeah. So, so how do we thrive? as as Christians with we, we, we claim to have this very high view of serving a sovereign God who created us, uh, redeemed us, will one day return and recreate everything that's gone so wrong. Um, so why are so many Christians so gloom and doom when they look at this world? How how do you end up there in that kind of place? Well, I, I think it's the natural place we are with the spiritual battle within us. That's why scripture writes to, you know, I pray that your eyes would be open to know the hope that you have yeah, uh, and to understand your inheritance and to understand the resurrection power you have because we naturally don't know it. So first of all, it's human condition. 
But then the second thing is, I write about it a little in Thriving in Babylon, is uh, uh, the media makes it all the worse. That's definitely Because true. Uh, the media uh, has to have uh, ratings. Yeah. You know, and I understand that. I'm not that critical of it. If nobody reads my books, a publisher's not going to publish them. Right. But uh, therefore, there has to always be a crisis de jour. Uh, and, uh, you know, talk radio, Christian talk radio, uh, all of those things, none of them ever tell you how good it is. They all give you, hey, come here, come here. I'm going to show you what the rest of the world doesn't see. And by the way, how horrific this is. And so you add that to our knee-jerk reaction of fear. Yep. Uh, and then you add that to our knee-jerk reaction of bitterness, slander, and all of those responses. Uh, my goodness, you have a really toxic recipe. Yeah. And you, you hold up Daniel as an example, and specifically these virtues of hope, humility, and wisdom. Uh, can you just briefly break down those three things and how you see them in Daniel or why they're so sure. important in the remedy? Well, I love the fact that, and nobody ever taught me this. I was just like working through it. I went, oh yeah. my gosh. I mean, the key to understanding Daniel is in those first two verses. Yeah. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim and Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar. Yep. And he took devoted things from the temple. Oh my gosh. Right. You know, Achan was killed for hiding something that belonged in the temple. Yep. And, and it was the Lord who let Nebuchadnezzar win. Yeah, that's good. And, and so right at the beginning, uh, the author of Daniel um, is telling us to understand Daniel's story, whether he's the one who wrote it all or, you know, he compiled it and someone afterward put it. I don't, I wasn't there. Yeah. But uh, it's the inerrant word of God. That's right. Uh, and, and, and it says, you got to know this before you know anything about the story. God's in control of who's in control. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's why Daniel, going through everything he ever did, always had a sense of, I don't like this. It's no fun. Uh, but, you know, God's got a plan. There's yeah. no accidents here. And, and I bet Daniel didn't grasp that at the beginning. Yeah. You know, Daniel's written at the end of his life. Right. When all of these pieces are there and looking back, he says, man, let me tell you. Yeah. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Yeah. The Lord gave. So to me, that's what I taught mean by his hope. And, and when I understand God's in control of who's in control, it's like, OK, that doesn't mean Nazi Germany is a good thing. Right. It does mean God's not surprised by it. Yeah. It does mean driving all the missionaries out of China is not a good thing, but it does mean God's going to bring something out of the enemy's best shot 70, 80, 90 years later. Yeah. Um, and then his humility, I'm just astounded. One of my favorite things is uh, when he delivers to Nebuchadnezzar the message that your pride and arrogance is going to cause you to, you know, be like an animal. Right. His phrase is this, O king, I wish it was anybody but you. Hmm. Uh, that's not how most Christians would respond to current-day political enemies. Right, they definitely not. Like, yeah, right. I've yeah. been praying for this. Yeah. But Daniel seems to have a genuine affection and care for Nebuchadnezzar. It's no wonder Nebuchadnezzar listened to him. Right. Um, and then his wisdom, I, I mean, many of us would just fight like crazy if our name was changed to uh, uh, honoring a demonic God. And he said, just don't call me late to dinner. I don't care what you call me. Right. Because it went from God is my judge to Baal's prince. Right. Like, I don't care. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, forced to study the occult. He didn't homeschool. And I'm not using that as a dump on homeschool. Sure. I call somebody homeschool great. But uh, 
to make it in that culture, he not only put up with three years of astrology in the cold, he graduated number one in the class. Right. Which gave him a platform to say, this is bunk. Let me tell you about the God most high. Yeah. Um, we just don't have wisdom to pick our battles. We try to make non-Christians love a Christian. If the guy in the cubicle next to me uses my Lord's name in vain, what do I expect? Yeah. He's got a lot bigger problem than that. Yeah. So why am I going to be all over his case? Daniel wasn't all over Nebuchadnezzar's case for mocking God because uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a lost pagan. Yeah. So let's say that someone uh, wants to push back on that a little bit and they're like, well, what about what about Jude? What about we're supposed to contend for the faith? How does that fit into this grid of, you know, looking at Daniel's example and being people of hope, humility, and wisdom and choosing our battles? And, you know, what about the fact that we're called to contend for our faith? What, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, we're called to contend for our faith, first of all, among one another. Yep. And we're always called to do it in love. That's good. Which always we suck at that. We, yeah, and, and, and we almost act like, well, at least I'm right. Right. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you're not characterized by patience, not, you know, when you get down to that list, yeah. patient, kind, not keeping track of wrongs, he says, I don't care how right you are. Yep. You have nothing. Yep. Or I think of the church at Ephesus that within one generation went from changing a city's economy, the riots that took place in Acts there, to the Apostle John's not even dead yet, and Jesus says, well, you've got great doctrine, deeds, determination, you don't grow weary, all that, but you know, I'm gone. Right. I'm leaving, because yeah. you don't have love. And That's right. I just don't think we, we believe the scriptures when it comes to the importance of love when it comes to contending. Yeah, that's good. So I, I would say, no, Daniel contended for the faith. Um, Joseph contended for the faith, um, but they did it in a loving way. Yeah. Well, the Apostle Paul says the Lord's bondservant, even when we're dealing with someone who is doing the will of enemy, is to be gentle, kind, not resentful, uh, kind to everyone. Well, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Well, the book is great. And I just want to personally thank you so much for your high commitment to pouring into other pastors and leaders. My church has benefited because I've benefited from your writing and your teaching and excited to bring our team back out in October to mainly because we won't be in Chicago in October. We'll be in San Diego. So I'm super fired up about that. But Larry, thanks so much for coming on in the room and thanks for this book. And uh, I hope lots of people read it and benefit from it. Thank you. Good to be with you. If you've never read anything by Larry, I'd recommend that you pick up any of his great books. As usual, Thriving in Babylon is filled with insight, humor, and help that I've come to expect from him, and I'd encourage you to check it out. That's it for this episode, but don't forget you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley, and also on my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 26 and my conversation with Sam Storms about whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.